right, folks, thanks for joining us for our third session of uh, Equip as we look at what the whole Bible has to say about the doctrine of the church. Thanks for being here, even though last week I told you I wasn't going to be here, and I hope I'm not thanking an empty room right now for being here. So I hope the room's full and all of our tables are full. If you haven't already done so, uh, grab one of the uh, handouts that are at the back and make sure that you've signed in, you've checked your name off uh, the list, and that hopefully you're at a table with some people you didn't sit with last week because we want to get to know uh, other people in our church as we continue to build uh, this family together. And so today our subject is uh, what does the church do? We're really going to pick up right where we left off last week with thinking about what the church does, how we can know a true church from a false church. And really we're going to think about what the church does today through the lens of more and less pure or less pure and more pure churches. But before we do that, you're going to do uh, an opening discussion and time at your tables like we have been doing. The question that I want you to address today, really it's a two-part question, based on the reading, so based off of what we've read in uh, Mark Dever's book, The Church, why is the who more important than the how of the church's practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper? So Dever, in the reading, if you did that, really picked up right where we left off, thinking about those two essential pieces of the church, right preaching of the word and right administering of the, the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. And uh, he explained those and talked about some of those. And so I want you to think about the who. He talked about why the who is more important than the how. Uh, but I also want to answer this question. Does this mean that the how is unimportant? So is how we baptize or how we administer the Lord's Supper uh, is by saying the who is more important than the how, does that mean that the how is not important? So take a few minutes, talk about this at your table. What you're going to do uh, is y'all are going to press pause and you're going to talk and then I will bring us back uh, together in just a few minutes. So now press pause, talk at your table. All right, so now we're back. Uh, normally, I'm able to listen to your tables and kind of get some feedback on what your discussions are. I hope what you determined there at your in your groups is uh, that the who is more important because what we're dealing with through baptism in the Lord's Supper is salvation itself. We are determining if people are saved. We are guarding the with the keys of the kingdom that the Lord has given the church which we'll talk about in, in a few weeks. Uh, we're, we're allowing people into uh, the family of faith and we're allowing them to progress forward in the family of faith and membership and through church discipline with baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the who is very important, but that doesn't mean that the how is not important, right? The how is still very important for us. And we're going to talk about both the how of um, preaching the word and the how of the ordinances as we kind of walk through uh, our discussion today. So if you'll get your notes out there, we're talking first about the purity and the unity of the church. Really our first topic before our break and middle discussion time is going to be on the purity of the church. Now the question that we're seeking to ask today is what does the church do? And you may have expected for me to come in and to talk about reach up, reach in, and reach out, uh, which is kind of how we categorize what our church does. Uh, but we're going to do that in the second to last lesson, second to last session of our time in this equip quarter. We're going to think about the purpose of the church. And that's how we have framed the purpose of the church is in reach up, reach in, reach out. We're going to talk about how we get to those three things from what the whole Bible has to say about the church. So when, we, when we're thinking about what the church does in the context of this discussion uh, today, we're really thinking about this progression of ideas, that the church believes something. And that because the church believes something, then the church values that thing. And because the church values that thing, then the church does certain things. This is why we as a congregation have developed six core beliefs, six core values, because we believe that core, we believe belief drives value and value drives action. And as we evaluate the actions of our church, 
What we're really doing is answering this very important question. How pure is our church? Is our church really a pure church? In another sense, is our church really a biblical church? And in truth, we can see in Scripture that there are more pure and less pure churches, even amongst true churches. Remember last week, we left off with the idea that there are true churches and there are false churches. But it's not necessarily as simple as that dichotomy makes it out to be that within those true churches, there are churches that are more pure, more biblical, more aligned with what the scripture teaches. And there are churches that are less pure, less biblical, less in line with what the scripture teaches. And our goal obviously should be to be a true church, but our goal should also be to be a pure church. There's a couple examples that we could see here in Scripture. First, let me give you an example of what we would say is a more pure church, the church at Philippi, which Paul writes the New Testament letter of Philippians to. He says this to that gathered group of believers in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The church at Philippi is known as the New Testament church that maybe they didn't have it all together, but they were as pure of a church as we get as an example in the New Testament, as far as a local church goes, it's why, or one of the reasons why, in this four-part equip series that we're rotating people through in these four quarters, one of them is a exegesis series through the book of Philippians. Because the book of Philippians provides for us a picture of what a healthy, pure, biblical church looks like. But there are also, sadly, but for our benefit, examples of less pure churches in the New Testament. Um, there are more than one example. We could look at the church at Corinth, but I think a great place to look is really the church at Galatia. Paul writes to this church, and if there is ever a book of the Bible that Paul is shouting the entire time he's writing, it's this one. And this is part of his introduction uh, to that letter. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-9, through 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what Paul's having to write to the Galatians to address is the fact that they are walking away from the true gospel, that they are compromising on essential Bible doctrines. They are moving away from being a true church to being a false church. And in that movement, they are becoming less pure. So I introduced to you Wayne Grudem last week, who I will use several of his definitions over the course of this quarter because I believe his uh, definitions are the most easy for us to understand. And he defines a pure church or the purity of the church as degrees of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct or a church's degree of freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and its degree of conformity to God's revealed will for the church. So Philippians is a great example, the church at Philippi, a great example of a church that is that has freedom from wrong doctrine and conduct and is conformed to the revealed will of God. And Galatians is an example of a church who, ha, who is, is not fully free from wrong doctrine and conduct and has not fully formed uh, or conformed to the revealed will of God for the church. And so the question that we're going to ask today is, by evaluating what we do as a church, Are we able to see, according to Scripture, that we are a pure church, a more pure church, or are we a less pure church? Now, from the outset, let's just recognize something. 
I said this from the very, I said this in session one. I know I'm going to get to heaven and find out that I'm wrong on something. Maybe even something that we're talking about today. I'm going to find out that there was some piece of this that I had misunderstood and we hadn't practiced right. And so that's why we're using the term more pure and less pure and not fully pure because none of us should have the arrogance to assume that we're 100% correct about everything and that our church is exactly like Jesus wants it. Let's just admit something. Our church isn't exactly like Jesus wants it. We want to strive for that. We want to hope for that. We want to push towards that goal together. We want to seek to sanctify our church as we strive for purity within our church and the things that we do as a church. But let's not ever assume that we've arrived. And so we can use uh, these, these things that were these different things the church does, we can use these to help us to try to uh, evaluate our own church. We're going to look at 11 of them and so because there's 11 of them and I've got to give you a break and I've got some things I want you to discuss and something I want to talk about at the end. I'm going to move through them quickly, okay? So I encourage you, I've got all the scriptures here. I'm going to read them, but if you will just write quickly and then you're going to have some time to discuss it um, when we take our break. So let's look at these 11 things um, that a church we can use to determine, at least in part, if a church is pure or not. Because a church's purity is determined in part by how closely it follows biblical practices. So let's look at 11 biblical practices of the church and show how these contribute to uh, the purity of the church. Because what the church does is how we can evaluate these things. So, the first one. The first two, we've already kind of determined, but we're going to hone in on them a little more closely. The first one, preaching and teaching right doctrine. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, he says, he must, he's talking about pastors of the church, uh, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right preaching and teaching of Bible doctrine is essential to the practice of a church. And the closer a church's teaching and preaching is to true biblical doctrine and right biblical doctrine, the more pure that church is. This was what my doctoral project uh, was concerning, was uh, preaching doctrine in expository sermon series. And I laid out in my uh, doctoral writing um, a, a number of biblical New Testament examples for the necessity of doctrinal preaching within the life of the church. The church has got to get doctrine right. Because if we don't get doctrine right, then those doctrines become values and those values become actions and we end up doing things that are opposed to what the scriptures would have us do or are simply not in line with what the scriptures would have us to do, uh, even if it's not contrary uh, to what the Bible says. It could be extra biblical. We could be out wasting our time doing something that the Bible doesn't want us to do. And so we need to preach and teach right doctrine. The second is we should have a proper use of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are, we talked about the sacraments last week. These are, we call them ordinances in the Baptist in Baptistic churches, um, the, this is baptism in the Lord's Supper. It's entry into the church family, and it's continuing in the church family, right? That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper represent. The, the initial sign of the new covenant, baptism, and the ongoing sign of the new covenant and participation in the church is the Lord's Supper. And doing these things correctly, doing these things properly according to the Bible, uh, is, is important for the purity of the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, now it's a really long section and we're not going to read it all, but it begins in verse 17, if you want to write this down, all the way through the end of the chapter, all the way through the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it ends in verse 34. Paul is addressing that church, which may not be as, um, uh, as less pure as Galatia, as the church of Galatia was, but it's probably close. There are a lot of issues in 1 and 2 Corinthians that are raised about this church. And one of them was their practice of the Lord's Supper that they weren't waiting for one another, that they were actually receiving communion, receiving from the Lord's table while members were still not there. And some of them even were gorging themselves on the elements. Some maybe even getting drunk off of the elements instead of actually participating together at the Lord's table. And the apostle Paul writes to them, and it's like, what is in the world are you guys doing? 
Why are you doing this? You, you should rightly pray. So he lays out for them in 1 Corinthians 11 how you should wait for one another, come to the table together, how you should consider your heart and what's in your heart before you take the elements, how important these things are for the church as we continue uh, to, to, um, to observe this sign of the new covenant. Baptism would be similar to that, that we, we, should, we should practice baptism as biblically faithfully as possible. And so for our church, the way that we've uh, viewed baptism is it seems clear to us that baptism in the New Testament was always believers. It was always, in every case, uh, the named person who was baptized was a believer. They professed faith in Jesus, and then they entered the waters of baptism following in the example of Jesus. And so that's the way that we practice these things. So proper use of baptism, the Lord's Supper, the proper use of the ordinances or the, or the sacraments uh, are a sign, a helpful practice that determines if a church is more or less pure. Number three is the proper use of church discipline. Listen to what Paul says to that same church, to so the church at Corinth, a few chapters earlier in chapter five. He says in verses six and seven, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that there that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Whew, this is difficult teaching. <laughs> I mean, Paul's writing this church that's having some issues, and here's what he says. He doesn't say that church discipline is going to fix all of their problems. But he says if they don't practice church discipline, they're going to continue to have the same problems they've always had. This is why they need to. And he uses a baking analogy that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of us, right? That, that uh, when he talks about leavening, he's talking about the leavening agent uh, that, that makes bread, makes baked goods rise. You know, he says, just takes a little bit and a little bit works its way in and it leavens the whole, it leavens the whole loaf, right? The whole lump, the whole thing gets, gets leavened. Well, it's the same way in the church. If we allow people to remain within the congregation who are not believing the same things that we're believing or not practicing the Christian faith as we have set out as a church to practice it. If we don't practice church discipline, meaning we don't correct brothers and sisters in love, correct brothers and sisters in their practice, encourage them in their commitment to the church, and maybe even put people out of the church because they have been unwilling to to, to repent of their sin or unwilling to repent of ways that they've wandered away from the faith. Listen, what, what Paul was saying, what happened to the church at Corinth, what happened to us? That we've got to be willing to properly use church discipline. Now, we're going to unpack a lot of church discipline as we move into, um, as, we, as we talk about guarding the church uh, in, in the coming weeks. But some people will listen to a verse like this from the Apostle Paul and they'll say, Man, that's, that's just really tough. That's really hard. Paul's being too harsh on the church. Uh, of course, people would say, well, Jesus would never say something like that, except for he did, right? In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus outlines for us how the church is supposed to practice church discipline in love, that we're supposed to go to a person, and if the person repents, wonderful, we've gained a brother. If they don't repent, then we bring another person uh, alongside of us as a witness to their sin, and then ultimately, we present it to the uh, ecclesia, to the assembly, to the congregation. And we say, this person is living in sin and they are unrepentant of their sin. And we need to put the leavening outside the lump so that it doesn't affect the whole. Far too many modern day churches are unwilling to practice church discipline. They're unwilling to actually do the hard work of getting involved in a believer's life, in a fellow uh, church member's life and say, friend, brother, sister, Come back to what you have agreed to. Come back to the church. Come, come back to right doctrine. Come back to right practice. And because of that, we have less pure churches. And so to be a more pure church, we're going to practice not proper use of church discipline. Number four, genuineness in worship. Paul writes to the church at Ephesians in, Ephesians, in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And he connects that then to worship. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is an essential part of what the church does. And we should have genuineness in our worship. Now, here's what I want to make sure I communicate clearly. 
Genuineness, genuineness in worship has nothing to do with worship style. I have seen genuineness in worship in high church, liturgical churches. You understand high church, liturgical churches, uh, churches that, that repeat a lot of things together, churches that may s- say the same things or some of the same things every week, um, that may sing some of the same things every week, may do so with very little instrumentation or no instrumentation. I've seen incredible genuineness of worship in those settings. I've also seen incredible genuineness of worship in places um, uh, around the globe that have very different worship practices than we do, that may sing different songs than us, have different instruments than us, may even structure their servants different, differently than us. And I've seen genuineness of worship in the way that we worship. I've seen it in churches that sing only hymns, that sing only new songs, that do kind of like we do a combination of both. Listen, style is not what is important here. What's important to genuineness of worship is what's really happening as members of the church address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with our hearts, being thankful together for the body of Christ and for what Jesus has done for us and praising God for it. So you can have genuineness of worship in any kind of worship style. You can also have ungenuine in Ungenuine? Is that the word? I don't know. I'm in here by myself recording. I, don't, I can't ask anybody. Um, non-genuine. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Non-genuine worship, the way we do it and the way everyone else does it. So we want to we evaluate our worship and say, is our, is our worship genuine? Because if it is, that makes us a more pure church. Number five, dependence on prayer and the Holy Spirit. Writing to the church at Thessalonica, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is verses 16 through 19, really quick verses. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, and do not quench the spirit. You notice the connection here. There's this connection between rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving according to the will of God and also not quenching the spirit, that these are things the church does together and that we would have a dependence upon it. That we would, we would depend on God. We would depend on the work of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not even just in our own lives, but in our corporate life. That a church that thinks they can do whatever it is that they want to do without the power of God, without the power of prayer, without the Holy Spirit working through that church, that's, that's not a church. That's just a group of people that are able to do something on their own, Right? What we want to be is a church that's dependent upon God. This is why we do things like publish our bi-monthly prayer guide and ask everybody in our church, in their small groups, in their ministries, and in their own home lives to pray for what's happening in our church because we want to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit uh, and the power of God to work in our church. So, So pure churches are dependent upon God to work, not upon their own ingenuity and their own power. Number six, bold evangelism. Bold evangelism is represented in the mission of the church to make disciples. Jesus gives us his mission in Matthew 28 where he tells his disciples and by uh, transfer from them all the way to us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have um, teaching them all I've taught you uh, to, to observe, right? It, Luke records it a little differently in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, and you'll go into where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of my earth, you'll, you'll, ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses in all of these places, right? There's, there's a boldness to our witness and churches that have shrunk in on themselves and are only become inwardly focused are less pure churches than those who are, who are always looking for opportunities to be a witness for the gospel, whether it's locally in our Jerusalem, whether it's regionally in our Judea or Samaria, or it's around the world. We want to be bold in our evangelism. So we think about being a pure church. Pure churches are bold with the gospel. Number seven, committed to fellowship of believers. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're supposed to love each other and people that love each other like spending time with each other, that we fellowship together, um, that, that we share in life's joys and life's burdens together. I wonder, do how people who approach church as 
I go to church and I see those people one time a week and that's all I think about them. That's all I see them. That's really all the connection that I have with them. I wonder if they think that is genuine fellowship, if that's really church. There's probably people that, that come to our church, consider themselves a part of our church, that that's their mindset. We would hope everybody would have this mindset. The church is way more than just an hour a week. The, the church is a, a family that we're a part of. Remember we talked about the church as a family. It was one of the metaphors we talked about from the New Testament last week about the church. And families spend time together. We love each other. We fellowship together. So we have a, a commitment to the fellowship of believers is one of the marks of a more pure church. Number eight is a biblical form of church government. Now, when we say a biblical form of church government, it doesn't mean that the Bible tells us everything that we're supposed to do. It doesn't tell us all the things we're supposed to vote on. It doesn't tell us how many elders we're supposed to have, other than I do think it does tell us we're supposed to have more than one of them. Um, it doesn't tell us what the deacons are supposed to do. It doesn't tell us how to handle the finances of the church, other than handling it wisely and generously. Right? But the Bible provides frameworks for us. In places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we get these frameworks of church government. And, and what we believe, what we practice, I think the biblical principle is that we're supposed to remain within that, that framework. And within that framework, we can make our own decisions about how elders serve and how deacons serve and how the church functions congregationally together, Right? But the, the more pure of a church, where when we get outside of those that framework, the less pure of a church we become. When we start to allow um, uh, cultural systems, and churches do this. Like there's a lot of churches that are just run like businesses today. Why? Because there's a lot of examples of healthy businesses, and so we just run our church like a business is what some people do. A lot of church, some churches run themselves uh, like a small town, right? And they have they have these meetings and every little thing is voted on, right? They vote on the color of trash cans. They vote on the color of carpet. They vote on this. They vote on... Well, I guess, you know, maybe you could do some of those things, but we really ought to ask the question, is that within the framework of elder leadership and the congregation following that leadership, but also uh, approving who those people are and the direction of the church? So we ought to think about our form of church government Every church should think about their form of church governor and ask, is this within the framework that the Bible provides? Number nine, a dedication to holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 16, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There is a command that the church, remember, Peter's writing to the church, and, he, and he, he, as obedient children, that's a plural noun that he's using. He's writing to a congregation. And he says, you, congregation, be holy. Later in his writings, he'll call the church one of the metaphors we looked at last week, a holy temple. And we talked about the need for the church, the body of Christ, to be concerned about holiness, to be concerned about righteousness. We should have a dedication to holiness, to one another's sanctification, that I should be able to look at you and say, how's your holiness? And you should be able to look at me and say, how's your holiness? And we are helping one another to grow in Christ-likeness. We should be dedicated as a congregation to holiness. Think about it. We're talking about things that we do. And one of the things that we should do as a church is be dedicated to the holiness of one another because we are the holy temple of God. Number 10, we care for the community. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable. Um, and, and at the end of that parable, he, he says, um, for I was hungry and you gave me no food and I was thirsty. And you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you not welcome me naked. And you not clothe me sick and, you, and, uh, and in prison, you do not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And think about that for a minute. The church can't just minister to itself. We can't just be concerned about our own fellowship. We can't just be concerned about our own doctrine. We can't just be concerned about what's inside. And when we look outside, we should very much be concerned with our bold witness for the gospel, but we should also look to care for the needs of our community. This is a command of our Lord. James, in his letters to the church, in James chapter 1, verse 27, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
that we should care for our community, particularly, and we say this in our core value, that we will show God's love to all people at all time while giving special support to the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. Because what James is representing in James 1.27 is what the minor prophets so often spoke of, and that is that the assembly, the ecclesia, the people of God, the church, the New Testament, is supposed to care for the marginalized. We're supposed to care for those who can't speak for themselves in our community. And more pure churches do that. Number 11, finally, is a love for Christ. That we should have a love for Christ. Though we have not seen Him, we, we love Him. Though we do not see Him now, we believe in Him. Right? This, is, this should be a mark of our church. It should be evident that our devotion, first and foremost, is to our head. Our devotion, first and foremost, is to our husband. That we are the bride, we are the body, he is the head, he is the husband, and we love him. So what I want you to do now is take our five-minute break. And uh, at the end of that five-minute break, I don't press pause yet, at the end of that five-minute break, you're going to come back together. Uh, Barry's going to get you guys back together. And this is what you're going you're to discuss. Of the 11 signs of a more pure church... We've discussed which, of, which do you believe show the purity of our congregation? So which of these are you doing well on? And are there any of these signs that you believe we may need to address in the purity of our congregation? So we're going to evaluate for a minute. So you're going to take a five-minute break, and then you're going to take five or seven minutes or so to discuss that at your table. So press pause now, take your break, and then do the discussion, and I'll be back with you. All right, so we're, we're back. Hopefully you only took a five-minute break. Hopefully you didn't take a long one because I wasn't there. And I hope that you were able to see there are several things, several of these 11 uh, signs of a more pure church that, that we really are, I, I hope, with humility, uh, we really are doing well on. And maybe you identified a few that we could work on some more. Um, and as we continue forward in this equipped series, who knows what the Lord may do in the life of our church because of evaluations like we're doing as a part of this class. To finish our time together before I have you talk about one other thing, uh, we want to talk about the unity of the church because this really goes together. And we've talked about a lot of things the church does and how we can check, we can determine whether a church, a true church, is more pure or less pure. They're a church at Philippi or they're a church at Galatia by what the church does. And we looked at 11 things. Those probably aren't the only 11 things in the New Testament, but those are 11 important things that the church does in the New Testament that we could then use to evaluate our congregation or any congregation to determine if it is more pure or less pure according to its dedication to Scripture. But there's something else that contributes to, our, to the church's purity. And it's not so much as, as, about what we do as it is about how we do it together. And this is the unity of the church. That the unity of the church speaks to the fact that we are committed to the body of Christ together and we are committed to not allowing division within the body of Christ. And those things matter for us. It, it matters. This, this really does matter for the purity of our church because we could say we're doing all of these 11 things, but we're constantly at strife with one another. We're constantly arguing with one another. We're constantly bickering with one another. We're constantly thinking that we know best and we want to go our own direction. And truth be told, a church is probably not going to do those other 11 things if they're doing that. But often what breaks down first is the unity. And when unity breaks down, it ends up pulling our worship down and it pulls our prayer down and it pulls our gospel witness down and it pulls our ministry down because we allowed unity to break down. So I'm probably going to talk about unity more than once in this equipped series, but I want to talk about it here just briefly because we're still thinking about from last week, the universal and the local church and what it is the church now does and, and unity is important to that. So let's just address this for a minute. Let's think about the unity of the universal church. Remember, if you weren't here with us last week, the church is universal and local, right? It's invisible and, and visible. There's the church that God sees, the people of God for all time. And then there's the local expression of the church, Nansman River Baptist Church and, and hundreds of thousands of others like us around the world. And there is unity that is to be found in both of those, in the universal and uh, the local. 
So let's just start with the universal. In John 10, 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about us, by the way. He's talking about Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So go back to the metaphors we considered last week. Jesus is the head. We are the body. Jesus is the husband. We are the bride, right? Here's another one. Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the flock. And we often think about the the flock as being the local church and the elders, pastors being the under-shepherds. We always call them under-shepherds because Jesus is the chief shepherd. But in this context, Jesus is talking about the universal church. That the universal, there is unity within the universal church because the universal church is one flock. All true believers for all time are one flock. They're one group of people. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, Paul introduces this idea. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, a local church, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul, he does something really helpful for us, right? To the church of God that is is in Corinth, that's a local church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's how people become a part of the local church, right? The church identifies a profession of faith and people join a local church together with all those in every place called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So together with all of the other churches. So this is why we can read a a letter like 1 Corinthians 1 and know, or 1 Corinthians, and know that Paul, like the other letters to the church, while yes, they were addressed to a specific local church, Therefore, all the church, right? And there's a, there's a unity. So there should be unity between our church, which is a part of the flock, and the whole big flock, which is the flock of God. But there should also be a specific unity, a specific dedication. We should love and be dedicated to the unity of all Christians. And I'm not negating that when I say this, that we should have a special love and a special dedication to the believers of Nansman River Baptist Church. Why? Because, yes, we are unified with all of the people of God as part of the flock of God, but as this local expression, we are called to be one as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But he's speaking here to this local church and saying, You, church, be one. The unity of the local church greatly impacts the purity of the local church. That as we are dedicated to loving one another, to discipling one another, to ministering to one another's needs... To, to encouraging and equipping one another like we're doing right now. We're demonstrating the unity of the church. And when we become less committed to these things, when all we think of is church is what I can get out of it and I show up and I get something out of it and I'm not really concerned about what the person next to me is getting as long as I like the things that I like and the church is doing the things that I like. As long as we're, as long as we're thinking about church in, in that way, um, what ends up happening is it causes disunity amongst the believers because people are, are thinking about their own way. They're not thinking about one body and, and one spirit as we were called by one Lord and one faith and one baptism, right? They're, they're, they're only thinking of their own self. And as we begin to divide into these pockets of people who only think about themselves or only think about their uh, interest or their, their group's interest, we become less dedicated to the unity of the church. As we become less dedicated to the unity of the church, we stop doing the things the church is supposed to do. However, as we think about the church, both universal and local, the church, unfortunately, is marked by split. Our, our history is full of splits. Um, for the first couple hundred years, at least, few hundred years, um, the splits were minor. The, the church in the, in the early church period and the New Testament church period in the early church period were pretty dedicated uh, to unity. And we have early church councils 
who were dedicated to unity, the first of which being you know, in the book of Acts with the Jerusalem Council, and we have others after it. And then eventually um, we start to see that the church um, begins to, in different places, begins to think differently and to begin to act differently and to begin to do things differently, uh, ultimately leading to uh, a split about a thousand years into uh, the new time. Really had a good run, didn't we? About a thousand years into um, the, the church age, uh, the, 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 what was considered the church uh, at the time, splits into East and West. This was known as the Great Schism. It, took, it actually took place in um, 1054 AD was when uh, the, the Great Schism took place. So we ended up with the, the Western Roman Empire, the, the Roman Empire, and the Eastern uh, Empire, which was, which was um, leader was in Constantinople, now, um, now Istanbul. About 500 years later, there's a split again. I addressed it last week, the Reformation, right? About 500 years ago, major split amongst the Western church, and that uh, was during the Reformation where a group of people tried to reform the church because the church had wandered into some very bad teachings and some, some even worse practices, uh, really, and, and they tried to fix it, and they kicked them out of the church for it, so they started their own churches, and that's really in the line of churches where we come from is this, is this Protestant Reformation. Um, and then since the Protestant Reformation, there have been numerous, I mean, uh, uncountable divisions amongst denominations and then churches. And I imagine everybody in this room could think of at least one church at some point, like local church, that has, that has split, right? Uh, pretty much any church with the name new in it um, is new for a reason. <laughs> Because they probably split at one point. I'm sure there's one out there that that's not the reason, but for many of them, it is, right? That it was this, and 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 they split. So our our history has been split over. Uh, our history is full of division. We got to ask the question, really, why? And and when is that okay? Because unity is important, but when is disunity the better step? When is, when are when is it not really even disunity? When is it the right decision for the unity of the church, for the purity of the church, for the health of the church? Denominations have to ask this question. The Methodist denomination right now is, is answering that question. Actually, they've answered it. Uh, the United Methodist Church, which has existed in its current form for a very long time, um, over the last couple of years have come to an impasse and this global denomination is now splitting in two. You have the United Methodist Church, I believe it's called the Global Methodist Church. Uh, and churches within that denomination are having to make a decision which direction they're going to go. The Southern Baptist Convention went through a split like that in the 1990s uh, with a group, a splinter group, not a large, it wasn't a 50-50 split, it was something like 90-10, but um, with a, a splinter group going and forming the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And so, and then it, at church level, again, this happens. When is it the right when is that the right moment? Because th- there, there are moments, but th- that we shouldn't look to that. It's not like it's the, our first step shouldn't be let's divide. Our first step should be let's unite. The, the unity of the church should be infor- important to us. We should seek as much as we can to be free from division among true Christians, both in the universal church and the local church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. God, let that be true of our church. But there are reasons why maybe we should separate. There are reasons that times the church should say, um, we're going to split fellowship with, with a church that we've been in fellowship with, with a denomination that we've been in fellowship with, with a group of churches we've been in fellowship with, or even a, a member should say, I'm going to have to split with the church that I'm involved in. Um, As pastor of the church in the seven years plus years now that I've served as pastor of this church, I've had many really heartbreaking conversations with people. Uh, Possibly people sitting in in this room have had these conversations with me. Um, when, When you've come into the life of our church and it's been difficult for you, not because you've not found a place that you love and and that you agree with, you want to be a part of, but because of the, the, what's the, the, the events that took place at the church that you were a part of before and the circumstances surrounding your departure. And there are times that people, multiple occasions, where people have looked me in the eye and, and they've told me what's happening in their church and, and they've said, did we do the right thing for leaving? 
And do you know there have been times that I've looked at people and I've said, I don't think you did. I think you should go and, and at least try to be restored. And maybe you can't. And if, and if you can't, then it's okay. Um, but, but at least try to be restored to the, to the brothers and sisters there. Um, because that, I think, is what the Bible would want you to do. And then there's been other times where people have looked at me and said, have we done the right thing by leaving? And I've said, unfortunately, I have to tell you, you've absolutely done the right thing. Because it, it, unity at all cost is not what we're talking about. And we shouldn't stay under certain uh, circumstances. What are those? Well, I just want to give two. First is for doctrinal reasons. Christians are not commanded in Scripture um, to, to stay in a church that is flawed doctrinally. And I'm talking significant flaws. So we're not talking third order. We're not talking about we disagreed over the nature of Christ. That's third order. We're not minor little disagreements here and there. We're not going to divide over things like that. But if there are significant, sometimes second order, but certainly first order doctrines that you can no longer disagree over, that you can no longer agree over within a church, then it is time to leave. It doesn't mean that you should try to split the church. This is what I tell people. Don't don't try to go in and, and cause a bunch of waves. State your reason and then, and then go. But make sure it's not a preference issue. Make sure it's not a minor doctrine. Make sure it's, this is where theological triage is so important for us. Make sure it's not one of these minor things that you're elevating to a position of importance. But Christians should withdraw their membership and seek out a more pure church when there are fundamental errors of doctrine in place in a church. And unfortunately, Quite unfor- And I say this with, with, with genuineness in my heart. I consider that unfortunate. Anytime a church in our region, anytime a church anywhere, but we're affected in, in churches in our region, anytime a church in our region moves towards um, false doctrine and, and moves away from orthodox teaching of the faith and, and orthodox practice of the faith, there are people that are hurt by that. And occasionally they end up landing here. And what I hope they find here is a church that, that's dedicated to one another, that's dedicated to the purity of the church and the unity of the church. Um, but often these, pe- often these people are hurt. Um, and, and, but but they're, right, they're right to leave. Um, there, there are also sometimes matters of conscience that there'll be a reason that a person should leave, that it's not so much doctrinal, but it's practice. Because remember, doctrine drives value, value drives action or, or practice. So most of the time, often it is a practice and someone will come and they'll say, my church has started to do this. And what they didn't recognize was that the doctrine was wrong. And sometimes I'll help them. I'll say, well, let's just trace back. Let's, let's look at what the church has said they believe. Let's look at the church has changed some doctrinal stances. Uh, oftentimes churches will do that. They'll change doctrinal stances and you got to ask this question, well, why are you changing a doctrinal stance? Well, it's because you want to practice something differently. And so sometimes people won't notice it on the doctrine side. They end up noticing it on the practice side. And, but if you really trace it back, it most of the time goes, goes back to that. But here's what we would hope. We would hope nobody ever has to do that from Nansen River. We would hope that we, we stay as a church. I am dedicated with everything within me as long as I pastor this church and I speak for the other elders here as long as they pastor this church that we will be a biblically faithful congregation. And if that's true about us, then my goal would be, our hope should be, that no one leaves unless the Lord has moved them away or they've gone on to heaven, right? And because we are dedicated to the unity of the body of Christ. And here's what I am so grateful for of our church as I talk about unity here. And I tell people this a lot that one of the things I'm so most grateful for of this congregation is its unity. We really do love each other. We really do want to do ministry together. We really do get along. We make decisions together very, very well, even when we disagree, even when there's moments of discussion or somebody has a question or we need to rethink the way that we're presenting something and that we're doing something. It's always done out of love. It's always done out of trying to be as biblically faithful as we can possibly be. It's always done with humility of spirit and with unity when it's over. I say that from our elders all the way up to our congregation, that we are a unified body, and I am so grateful for it. So I hope there's still time. I think I have taught this to where you probably have about five minutes left. Depends on if you took too long of a break. 
And here's what I want you to discuss as a close. How does belonging to a church that values a diverse, multi-generational congregation make unity within our local church difficult to obtain? And how does unity within a church like ours demonstrate the power of the gospel to the world? The most difficult kind of church to be is the kind of church that we want to be. We say in our core values that we value a diverse, multi-generational congregation. But that's going to mean people have to give up a lot of their preferences. And so you talk about why that's difficult to obtain, but why that is such an incredible gospel witness in our world. So what you're going to do is you're going to talk about that for however much time you have left. And I'm going to ask if Barry uh, will close you guys out in prayer. And I look forward to seeing you back this Sunday. I'll be in the pulpit uh, this coming Sunday. And then we'll be back for session four next Wednesday. Thanks for being here. God bless you.